Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23, we're going to look at the latter half of this chapter. As you find your place in God's Word, I want to welcome all those who are joining us via our live stream and uh, Reach Church DeSoto, the venue service right down the hall. We're grateful uh, for each and every one of you. On this uh, Memorial Day weekend, we want to pause this morning and and remember the sacrifices that have been made uh, that enable us to enjoy the freedoms that we so often take for granted. I think there's very few national holidays that remind us more of our faith in Christ than Memorial Day weekend. Because on Memorial Day weekend, we remember those who gave the ultimate measure of sacrifice in their lives to secure for us a freedom in this nation. And it points us to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that freed us from our bondage to sin, slavery, and death. And so we want to stop. It's no small thing this morning to stop and to be reminded of the fact that this morning we got up and we got ready and came to church, nice building, air-conditioned room. We had no real fear of persecution, no real fear of government turning us in and putting us in prison. We may grumble and complain, but we have a lot to be thankful for still yet in this country. And we also know we have brothers and sisters in Christ who that was not, not their experience this morning. They had to make special arrangements and oftentimes gather in secret, dark places in order to worship Christ because they don't know the freedoms we have. Many of our brothers and sisters have died for their faith in Christ. Many are imprisoned just for wanting to worship their Lord. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in those situations, but it reminds us of our gratitude for the freedom that we enjoy and the payment that was made in blood and sacrifice so that we could have these freedoms. So I, I just wanna pause and, and pray for us, pray for our nation this morning, so I would encourage you to join me as we, as we pray together. Lord, we come before you this, this Sunday morning and we come with hearts overwhelmed with gratitude. We do pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ this morning all around the world in very difficult places, very dark places. It's really been the experience of believers throughout Christian history that they would face persecution. They would dwell in places and in lands where they're reminded every day they're strangers, they're foreigners, and that this is not their home. We pray that you would sustain them and strengthen them because we know the beauty of the gospel is that where persecution exists, the kingdom grows to demonstrate the power and the glory of Christ and the gospel. Lord, we confess that we have taken our freedoms for granted so often. Number one, we rarely stop to remember those who fought and died for our freedom, and we thank you for them, and we thank you for the families that made sacrifices even in recent days, and Many will gather around tables this weekend and there'll be an empty seat because of somebody who gave the full measure of sacrifice and we pray for them and we pray for their families. But Lord, we pray that we wouldn't take these freedoms for granted. That while we have these opportunities to go into this world and proclaim Christ, we would do so boldly and thankfully. 
so that your gospel might continue to advance in freedom. So Lord, help us always to remember and help our remembrance to grow with this in us a spirit of gratitude that's demonstrated in how we live. We do pray for our nation today. We desperately need you. We recognize this morning that much of the difficulties that we're facing today are a result of the church's lack of faithfulness to our clear mission. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be salt and light in this world, that we would be a people, your people, who are called by your name and we would humble ourselves and we would pray, knowing that then you will heal our, heal our land. Lord, we pray that you would bring about repentance and revival. We know that the great need of our nation is not another political leader. The need of our nation is to recognize the ultimate King of kings and Lord of lords, which is Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that you would bring us to our knees and I pray that prayer with much trepidation, knowing that every great revival in our nation was preceded by national pain. But Lord, as we'll be reminded of again in this passage today, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and yet lose his soul? So Lord, draw us back to yourself by whatever means you see fit and help us as your people to be faithful to your mission for the glory of Christ. We pray it in his name, amen. Well, we come to 1 Samuel 23. We're gonna pick up in verse 15. We continue to see that the more David trusts in God, the more dire his circumstances seem to become. He, he started out with a lot of hope, anointed by Samuel, wins a great victory over Goliath, looks like everything's gonna go great. And pretty much since that moment, everything's been downhill. Everything's just been difficult. And what we're gonna see in this passage is that as we serve the Lord, David's experience will be our experience. If, if you've not been through these moments that David is experiencing, you will be. At some point or another, you will go through these moments, moments when your back's against the wall and you realize very clearly that unless God shows up, you're sunk. You ever been there? That God, if you don't come through in this deal, we're done. And what we learn in those moments, what David will learn here, what all of us have to learn sometimes over and over again, is that we serve a miracle-working God who rescues his people. Do you believe that this morning? We serve a miracle-working God who rescues his people. As I was thinking about that, I was reminded of a story. of this little book I love, read it many times, The Battle of the Gods. I've handed many of them out. They're not in publication anymore. If you get your hands on one, you got your hands on something precious. Uh, this is my last one. I ain't giving it out, all right? So don't ask. But uh, it's written by uh, Professor Howard Hendricks at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. They used to call him just prof. Um, but he tells a story of the seminary that I was reminded of. Listen to this. I'll just read it. It's a short story. It says, shortly after the seminary was founded in 1924, it almost capitulated. It came to the point of bankruptcy. All the creditors were going to foreclose at 12 noon on a particular day. That morning, the founders of the school met in the president's office to pray that God would provide. And in that prayer meeting was Harry Ironside. When it was his turn to pray, he prayed in his characteristically refreshing manner. 
Lord, we know that the cattle on a thousand hills are thine. Please sell some of them and send us the money. (laughs) While they were praying, a tall Texan with boots on and open collar came to the business office and said, I just sold two carloads of cattle in Fort Worth. And I've been trying to make a business deal go through it. It won't work. And I feel God is compelling me to give this money to the seminary. I don't know if you need it or not, but here's the check. A little secretary took the check and knowing something of the criticalness of the the, the hour financially, went to the door of the prayer meeting and timidly tapped. When she finally got a response, Dr. Schaefer took the check out of her hand and it was for the exact amount of the debt. When he looked at the signature on the check, he recognized the name of the cattleman from Fort Worth and turning to Dr. Ironside, he said, Harry, God sold some of his cattle. Listen, God will often bring us to the very brink where we got nowhere else to turn. We've run out of solutions. Listen to me, that's where God does his best work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Speak to us through it today. Illumine our minds by the Holy Spirit to the truths of this text. And if there be any here that don't know you, I pray that they would see in this passage. Because what we need most in our state of spiritual bankruptcy, what we need most is a miracle-working God who rescues and saves. Speak to us, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, look at verse 15. Look back very briefly because it is the overriding verse of, of this passage right there at the end of verse 14. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. There's that clear reminder in the midst of all of this Uh, the author stops and wants us to be reminded that, that while Saul may think he's in charge, God is in charge. Um, this is a passage, you'll see the word hand, you'll see the hand of Abiathar, you'll see the hand of David, you'll see the hand of Saul, you'll see the hand of God. Uh, It's a passage that are talking a lot about hands, and the hand was your power, your sense of might, and the one overriding hand that rules it all is the hand of God. So the situation looks chaotic, but right there in the middle it reminds us, God is in charge. He's orchestrating every aspect of this for his glory. So David is in place of despair. Remember now he's been betrayed, betrayed by the men of Keilah. He's on the run again, bad situation. And now, verse 15, he became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. The wilderness of Ziph at Horish. It just sounds bad, doesn't it? It's not a great place. You, you, you wouldn't want a vacation there. It's a dry and desert, uh, desolate land. The psalmist David would write, in a dry and weary land, my soul thirsts for you. Many believe he could have been referring right here to this this moment. Well, he's in a place of despair. Will God move? Does God have ways in the midst of a season of great depression and discouragement? Does God have ways of encouraging us? Well, look at what happens in verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. God moves in the heart of David's best friend, Jonathan, and says, I need you to go encourage him. And and Jonathan sets out at great risk to his life, and he will set out to meet David to encourage him. 
Verse 17, thus he said to him, do not be afraid because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you and you'll be king over Israel. I'll be next to you and Saul, my father, knows that also. In an interesting, he, he comes to David and says, do not be afraid. I look at that and think I can only imagine David thinking to himself, it's easy for you to say. But I'm on the run every day, sleeping with one eye open and I got nothing to eat in a desert. And I am scared. The Bible over and over and over again tells us to not be afraid. Why does the Bible have to tell us to not be afraid? Because we get scared. That's just reality. God knows we are weak individuals and we tend to be people who are fearful at certain circumstances. And that's okay. Uh, I love what Winston Churchill said once. He said, when I'm afraid, I just act like I'm not. Uh, some people are afraid, and you know it. Some people are afraid, and they're just acting like they're not afraid, but they're afraid too. We all get scared. David is scared here. Isn't that good to know? David, who wrote the Psalms, who was a man after God's own heart, a man of great faith, occasionally got scared. But his friend Jonathan says, Come, don't, don't, don't be afraid, David. Come on now. Don't be scared. Now, if he'd have just left it there, it'd have been worthless, it'd been meaningless. You show up and and, and, and Jonathan is not going to give to David some kind of self-help pep talk. Uh, David, dig deep. You know, you got it in you. Remember that Goliath deal? You beat him. You can, you can beat Saul. It's not what he does. He says, don't be afraid. That's the exhortation. But what's important is his explanation of why he shouldn't be afraid. So why shouldn't David be afraid? Well, he reminds him of two things. He reminds him, number one, of the sovereignty of God. He says, the hand of Saul... My father will not find you. He will not find you. There's a reminder right there in that statement to David that my dad is not in charge. He thinks he is. Uh, Saul is a guy who knows. There's no doubt in my mind at this moment, Saul knows that David is the Lord's anointed. There's no way you could look at this situation, all these circumstances, and not see the hand of God upon David's life. He knows that he is the Lord's anointed, but he has decided in his heart to just oppose God. It's always a dangerous place to be when you say to God, I'm gonna oppose you regardless of what you've said. I'm just gonna do what I want. How will that work out for Saul in the end? It's not gonna work out well. You don't oppose God and win. So he, he's, he's opposing God and, and Jonathan reminds David, my dad's not in charge. Even though the circumstances look like he has the power and the authority, he doesn't. And God will not let his hand touch you. Why would, why would the hand of Saul not find David? That's the second thing that Jonathan reminds him of. He reminds him of the sovereignty of God, but the second thing he reminds him of is the promises of God. David, God made a promise that you would be, you'd be king. That was a promise he made to you, that you are the Lord's anointed, and you, you will be king. And if you die here, then God can't fulfill his promise. And God always fulfills his promises, so you trust in that. No matter how bad the situation gets, you trust in the promises of God. And this is so important for us. Just a couple of things right here that I think are obvious, but we gotta note. Number one, we need to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need that. Uh, Hebrews chapter three, take care that, that there not be in any of you an evil or unbelieving heart that causes you to fall astray. But it says, encourage one another. As long as it's called today, as long as we got breath in our lungs, part of the purpose of the community of Christ is to encourage one another. We need that. Did we not learn that in the midst of COVID? We need fellowship, don't we? 
We need rubbing shoulders with brothers and sisters in Christ. And you need to be an encourager and you need to be intentional about it because that was Jonathan. Jonathan intentionally got up and made an effort to go encourage his brother in Christ. And I say that you gotta be intentional because I know myself. I know that I tend to be very self-centered. And what I try to do is every day I make it a point I'm gonna encourage at least three people. I set it out my day. I'm gonna encourage, whether it be a phone call, a text message, or a card, I'm gonna encourage three people today. And it's amazing to me as I'm praying in the morning and I set that out as part of my goals for the day, whenever I'm doing my prayer reading, inevitably God will place somebody in my heart. And I'll immediately send them a text message and I'll say, hey, God just placed you on my heart today. I don't know why, but I'm, 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 I want you to know I'm praying for you right now. And on so many occasions, I'll get a note back that says, how in the world did you know I needed prayer today? Well, I didn't. God did, and he directed me. But that's how God, oftentimes, he encourages us as believers is through somebody else. But you gotta be intentional to do that, as Jonathan was. But when we go to people to encourage them, listen to me, the most powerful thing we can do is not give them any great words of wisdom in and of ourselves. Because that's what we tend to do. We see somebody that needs to, needs to be encouraged and we're gonna fix it for them, aren't we? You know, we're fixers, especially us men. You bring us a problem, we got a solution. May not be good, but we got one, all right? We'll give you, we'll give you our thoughts and we'll give you our opinion. Be careful asking somebody their opinion. They'll give it to you. But when somebody comes to you or you go to somebody that needs encouragement, the most powerful thing you can do is give them the promises of God in his word. The promises of God in his word. You direct them to the truth of God's word. And what you're really doing, it's what Jonathan does here, is he takes the hand of David and he takes the hand of David and he puts it in the hand of God. And Jonathan said, you don't really need anything from me. You need to be reminded of what God has said about you and what God is going to do for you. And so regardless of you, whether or not you get encouraged by another believer, if you find yourself in a place of difficulty and chaos in your life, the most important thing you can do is focus in and hone in on the truth of God's word that's unchanging. Grass withers, the flowers fade, word of the Lord endures forever. It never changes. And it's always relevant. God speaks to us in it and it moves us along. Because here's what happens. I'm I'm not an aviator, but I know this. A pilot, in order to be a pilot, has to be certified to fly by his instrument panel. I think it's one of the final certifications is that you have to be able to fly solely upon the basis of your instrument panel. Why? Because a pilot, when you get in the air, if you get in the clouds, you get in certain turbulent situations in the middle of the night, you'll actually get disoriented. And you will not be able to determine which way is up and which way is down. And there have been many a plane crashes where a guy thought he was pulling up and he was actually nosediving the plane. In fact, that's what happened with Kobe Bryant. You remember the helicopter, he's in the mist and the fog and he got disoriented and he actually thought he was pulling up and he drove the helicopter right into the side of a mountain. Even us as believers, we can find ourselves in such situations and circumstances that are so turbulent that we become disoriented. And if you start acting in the midst of that disorientation, you will make very dumb decisions that will oftentimes lead to a crash in the side of a hill. And what you have to do, 
what you have to do is fly by the panel. And the panel of our lives is the word of God. That it will be a light unto your path, a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. It will provide illumination in the midst of darkness. And you have to trust it. When everything else is chaotic, I'm gonna trust what God has said. I'm gonna cling to that. I'm gonna rest in the Lord. When we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, we, not only do we have people who will give us opinions about how to fix it, but we'll try to fix it, won't we? And oftentimes, the most powerful thing we can do in the midst of those moments is just to rest and trust in the Lord. Cling to him, cling to his word, cling to his promises. So, so Jonathan takes the hand of David, puts it in the hand of God, says, trust the Lord, trust what God has said, trust his word. You can't trust everything else right now, you can't trust. He can't, I bet David feels like he can't trust anybody. And Jonathan said, there's one, one person you can't trust, it's the Lord. You, you, you focus, focus on him. And so the two of them in verse 18, they made a covenant before the Lord and David stayed at Horus while Jonathan went to his house. So they, they renew this covenant that they have together with the Lord. And in verse 19, then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah saying, is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horesh in the, the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of uh, Jeshimon? Uh, isn't it interesting the, the, the particulars of the directions it's like GPS coordinates you know go, go two blocks down see the McDonald's take a left you'll see the CVS go right he's right there on that corner um, what makes this so discouraging is that the people of Ziph they're of the tribe what tribe are they of? tribe of Judah David is of the tribe of Judah Meaning, in many ways, his own family is going to betray him. His descendants, his tribe, his people are going to betray him. It's interesting because Judah, you remember it's Judah when Joseph, uh, it, was, it was which brother that said, well, let's sell him into slavery. It was Judah. Uh, which, uh, which tribe will betray Samson into the hands of the Philistines? Judah. Was there a guy who betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Romans? Judas. And here is Judah, again, betraying the Lord's anointed. and They're going to hand David into Saul's hands to be captured and to be killed. Why would, why would the Ziphites do this? The Ziphites would do this for the same reason that so many people will betray Christ today. They will walk away. Because in the short run, it seems expedient and good. In the short run, all they're looking at is right here in this moment, and they know right now Saul is in control, and we know Saul has the power to kill us or free us or to reward us or hurt us. And so right now, just on the basis of this circumstance, the most expedient and profitable thing we can do right now is to allegiance our lives towards Saul and not David. Now, they don't have a long-term view, do they? How will it work out for them in the long run? Oh, it ain't gonna work out well. In fact, you get a few chapters in, in 1 Samuel 30, and we'll get there in December. 1 Samuel 30, in 1 Samuel 30, uh, David is finally ascends to the throne, and he's handing out rewards to the cities of Judah, the, the cities that were faithful to him and helped him. You know, there's one city that's not in there. You know what it is? The city is if. Does God know those who have rejected him? He knows their name. 
And so the city, they're going to do something. It's a short-term game, long-term loss. Looks good in the short run, not going to work out well in the long term. So they sell David uh, into uh, Saul's hands. Verse 22, Saul said, may you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Now, this is interesting. Saul is listening to um, <laughs> uh, basically a demonic spirit. He's, he's not being led by God. He is opposed to the Lord's anointed, and, and yet here, when these people help him out, he says, but let the Lord bless you. And listen to me very, very carefully this morning. There's a lot of people who reject Christ, but they still want God to bless them. And you cannot have the blessing of the Father and reject the Son. And you cannot hear with David, you cannot, you cannot want the blessing of God and reject the Lord's anointed. It doesn't work that way. So Saul may pronounce it, but it's not true. Oh, the Lord bless you. And notice here, too, that Saul is continually playing the victim card. Never a good place to be. The Bible teaches over and over again personal responsibility. And over and over again, you'll see Saul here. Um, For you had compassion on me. I mean, he's the king. He's got all the power. He's got all the army and... Man, I'm in a bad spot, and you guys helped me out in a time of need. Thank you so much. Verse 22, go now make more sure and investigate and see his place where his haunt is and who has seen him there, for I am told that he's very cunning. And again, you see a leader. Y'all go do the hard work. You you put your lives at risk when you find him and you got him cornered. Come call me, and I'll show up, and I'll take all the credit for it. He's already done that with his son, Jonathan. You have a leader who uses, David will be with his men. In fact, the one instance in his life he gets himself into a lot of trouble is when he's not with his men. He goes with his men. He is in the battle. He is with his people. He is not saying, you you do what I tell you to. He's saying, do what I do. And Saul is a leader who says, you guys go do it. And then I'll show up when when the work's done. You see the difference between the two leaders? And so he sends them out. And notice what else is, I thought it was interesting, for, I, for I'm told that he's very cunning. Uh, <laughs> Jonathan, or, or David keeps escaping. And you would think after all these occasions where he keeps escaping, Saul might start to think, maybe God is on his side. But rather than give God glory, what does he do? Well, he's just a really quick guy. When you don't want to believe in God, you'll find all kinds of ways to explain away his work. It is very clear, God, in the book of Acts, Peter and Paul, they're in prison. They keep keep imprisoning those guys every time you turn around. And yet doors keep flinging open to those jails. They just keep getting away. Don't you think they would have stopped at some point and said, after this many prison breaks, maybe we ought to find out who they are and who they love and who they follow. But they're blinded. And Saul can't see. He's got no eyes of faith. He said, well, he's just quick. He's cunning. 
You search him out. Let me know when you find him. Verse 24, then they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Moan in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And uh, all you need to know about this is if, you know, if Ziph and Horesh wasn't bad enough, this is worse. The, the further out he goes, if you picture this in Israel, he's just moving further south and south and south and south and south, down by the Dead Sea. If you've been to that area and uh, you've been to Masada and you've been to those areas, it is desolate. There, there's nothing there. It is, and, and David, if he goes any further, he's going to move into Egypt and he can't do that. That's not a good place to be. So his back is against the wall. He just keeps moving further and further and further away and further and further back. And he can't go one way, can't go the other direction. I mean, the situation is as dire as it can possibly be. Verse 25, when Saul and his men went to seek him, uh, they told David and he came down to the rock. We're gonna see this, the rock. It's, it's a picture of God. God is gonna use this as an emblem of his protection. Um, I told the first service, I, this week as I see this rock, and it's going to be called the Rock of Escape, uh, my dad uh, is notorious for just starting to sing songs. He'll hear a word, and he'll just start singing. And uh, he used to drive me crazy as a kid, but now I'm kind of grateful. He taught me some good songs that stick in my head. And so this week, there's a, have you all ever heard I go to the Rock of My Salvation? I go to the Rock of My Salvation, I go to the stone that the builders rejected. I run to the mountain, and the mountain stands by me. The earth all around me is sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand. When I need a refuge, when I need a friend, I go to the rock. David's going to run to the rock of God. Isn't that good? The rock of God's refuge. In fact, El Shaddai. Shad in Hebrew, you know what it means? Mountain. The God... El Shaddai is God Almighty, the God of the mountain. He's running to the rock of God. He's got nowhere else to turn. And he, he stayed in the wilderness of Moan. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Moan. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize them. It was a movie, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a chase scene, you know. They, uh, you know, the Bourne, Jason Bourne series, you know, I, don't, I never saw a movie theater, but then they're on, I just get caught into it. You know, the guy just running, he always fights his way out of it. But you know those moments where it looks like he's dead, you know, he's gone, they're getting him. This is one of those moments, like Saul, so if you picture this, there's a mountain, not like the Rocky Mountains, but it's a large mountain. These were uh, rocky outcroppings. You, you couldn't just climb up this mountain. And, and, but this mountain, you got Saul and his men on one side, David and his men on the other side. And, and what, what, what it appears to me that Saul is doing, if I'm reading this correctly, is Saul goes around one side and he sends his men around the other and David's right there in the middle and he's got nowhere to go. I mean, it's fish in a barrel. This guy's gone. He is dead. He's got no hope. There is no salvation for this guy. He is going to lose and he is going to lose badly. All of his men are going to be Dead. That's the picture. You're, if, you, if, you, if we had an aerial drone footage of this, you just see them closing in. And you're thinking, here it goes. The Lord's anointed is going to die right there. Well, what does that next verse say? Very first word in verse 7 in my translation is the word, it's a conjunction. What is it? But. That's a good word in God's word. Uh. 
Ephesians chapter two, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the wear, the spirit that's now working, the sons of disobedience. Uh, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That was our spiritual de- depiction prior to faith in Christ. We were dead sinners, destined for the wrath of God. The full weight of God's wrath was, was directed towards us. We had sinned against the holy God, but what does it say? Very next verse. But... God, God steps in and God intervenes and right here at the moment of their their most dire need, when it looks like all hope is lost, God steps in, but a a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made, made a raid on the land. So what God does here is God moves through the Philistine nation to direct them to evade at just the right time so that Word gets to Saul at that moment and Saul realizes I gotta go and fend these people off and he leaves. Now the world looks at that and says, boy, what a crazy coincidence. I'll tell you what David believed with all his heart because you can read it in Psalm 54. He will give very clear credit to God. The world looks at it and says, oh, what an amazing set of circumstances. We look at it and say, what an amazing God. That, that they, they might have been the, 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 the primary means right there, but God was directing it all, and God moves in at just the right moment, and, and he directs. Now, can God, now this is crazy, because he's gonna use a, a Philistine people who do not believe God. Can God take unbelieving people and use them in his hands to accomplish his purposes? Absolutely, he can. And so just like a hammer in the hands of a carpenter, are the Philistine army and he just directs them and says, you're gonna go over here and you're gonna intervene in this moment for the salvation of my people. This is a miracle working God who rescues his people. When I was reading this, I reminded that um, Billy Graham, when he was starting his ministry, he just an evangelist for Youth for Christ, very good evangelist, but he actually wasn't the top, top name. The one that everybody wanted was Chuck Templeton. They all wanted Chuck Templeton. Um, Chuck Templeton would end up becoming an atheist, but they, that, he was the headliner. Billy Graham would kind of follow him. But Billy Graham was doing a crusade out in L.A. Um, and there was a publicist out there, William, I always forget his middle name, William Hurst, Randolph. Thank you, Bill. William Randolph Hurst. Publication, did these newspapers. He was not a believer at all. In fact, his life was pretty profane. But he heard, he had, a, he had a lady working for him and she kept telling him about this Billy Graham. And she would talk about the people in Hollywood that were coming forward and giving their lives to Christ at these crusades. And something happened and William Randolph Hearst a vile non-believer sends word out to all his people. Two, actually, two words. He only sent out two words. Puff Graham. Puff Graham, meaning give this guy some attention. And at that moment, his ministry took off like wildfire. Now, could God use, when you think about it, the beginning of Billy Graham's Ministry, really his taking off of his ministry was a result of a non-believer who sent two words, 
to a newspaper publication. Can God do that? You bet he can. God has means. Wherever you're at today, listen to me. God has means you know not of. And we look at situations and we see them and say, there's no hope. There's no way out of this deal. There's no way we're going to get through it. Did God take the people of Israel and Moses up to a Red Sea? And there was no hope. Now, did anybody at the Red Sea say, boy, I, that was a crazy coincidence. The wind kicked up just like that deal on that day and pushed that water back. Man, that was a neat deal. No, they were all saying, God intervened and he saved us. And people of Israel here, David and his men, there's no doubt God saved them because look at what happens. It says in Verse 28, so Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore, they called the place the Rock of Escape. Don't you love it? They name it. They put down a memorial stone and a place that David thought was gonna be his tomb turned into a, a tabernacle. A cemetery turned into a sanctuary. His place of sorrow turned into a place of singing. Can God do that? Can God take the places of the greatest difficulty in our lives, the places where our backs were against the wall and we didn't think we could go any lower and turn them into places and situations and circumstances that cause us to rejoice and worship our God even more because of how he showed up and rescued us in that moment. That is the God we serve. Rock of escape. So that when the kids came by, Mom, Dad, what, 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 why do we call that rock of escape? Well, I'm glad you asked, son. Let me tell you about a story about David and let me tell you about the hand of God intervening for the rescue of his people. Is there a picture God wants us to see here? God is a God who rescues. When we have no hope, God is a God who rescues. Verse 29, David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of, uh, strongholds of Engedi. Engedi, Engedi is uh, uh, in comparison to the Arabah and the wilderness of Horish. En Gedi is like the Bahamas. En uh, Gedi is a place you want to go honeymoon at, you know? It's got these beautiful springs coming out of rocks and waterfalls. You go see it. It's just, it's just gorgeous. But the reminder here is before you can, in fact, En Gedi means spring of the goats. Uh, the goats that climb on those mountains but the springs just come out of the rocks. But the picture here is, before you can get to the springs of the goats, you gotta go through the wilderness of Horesh. Suffering precedes glory. We've been seeing this over and over again. And uh, it's all down the south of Israel, the Dead Sea is down there. The Dead Sea, it's all dead. You know. It, some of it is beautiful. I guess it's beautiful, but I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, you can float. On, I mean, all y'all know that you float on the Dead Sea. You can just read a newspaper out there. You can just lay on your back, read it, put your coffee cup out there. You don't need a floaty or anything. You just go out there. But it, it's, it's nasty. Mean, the water is like, oh, I mean, I, it was nasty to me, you know. But it's a desert wasteland all around it, too, and it's dry. And in Getty's is this beautiful place. That it's been said that when you're in, when you're at the Dead Sea, you can't see in Getty. 
But when you're in in Getty, you can see the Dead Sea. Any of you ever been in a situation where you're like, I can't see any hope or any good coming out of this whatsoever. This is the most horrific situation I've ever been in my life. There's no good that ever come of it whatsoever. And you can't see what lies on the other side. And you just have to trust, don't you? You have to cling to that Romans 8.28. God really does work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And you just cling. You can't see it. You're just clinging. And when you get through it, then you look back, can't you? And you can see what God was doing, even as hurtful and as painful as it might have been. This afternoon, in fact, I'm getting ready to head out. I'm going to extend the invitation. I'm going to head on. I got it. I'm doing a wedding in Columbia. Two KU grads getting married in Columbia. I don't understand it. Doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know if it says something about KU graduates, but uh, man, some of y'all got mad right there. All right, hang with me, David. Don't hang with me. I'm... They asked me. This was interesting. I try to ask couples what what passage would you like me to use for your wedding. They asked me to use Revelation 21. Saw new heavens and new earth. Holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Made ready as what? As a bride adorned for her husband. Scripture, this is so interesting to me. I, I didn't even realize this or think about this until I had to study for this. this. Scripture begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding. In fact, the beginning of Jesus' ministry is what? A miracle at a wedding at Cana where he keeps the party going. We, don't, we Baptists don't like to talk about it because he turns water into wine. We don't, don't like that miracle. But, but wine was a symbol of great joy and celebration. When you think about it, what you do at the beginning, if, you, if you're running for political office, how you begin your campaign is really you, you want to let everybody know what you're about. Jesus does a miracle can't turns the water and wine. Why? Because he, in the midst of that celebration, he wants everybody to know that ultimately I came to bring the joy, the ultimate joyous celebration in Jewish culture was a wedding, biggest event in your life. What Jesus wanted the world to know is I came to bring ultimate joy. But at that moment, Jesus also knew that to bring us to that great wedding celebration at the end, what would have to happen? He'd have to suffer and die. Listen to me. God wants all of us at En Gedi. He wants all of us to enjoy the joy of that final wedding celebration. But in order to get there, he had to die to secure a way for us. And, and if we want to know that joy, we too, we have to die. We die to ourselves, we place our faith in Christ, and then we trust that no matter what happens in this world, we will be rescued. Amen? We will be rescued. Now, now for some of us, that may mean, and it will mean for all of us at some point or another, that our, that our rescue will mean what? That we're going to graduate on to glory. But listen to me, that's the best rescue of it all. God saves the best rescue for the last rescue. 
when he takes us from this place filled with sin and death and he rescues us to glory. Father, we thank you for your word. I I just pray if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray right now that you would work in their hearts to do what you did and all of us that know you to show us the depth of our own sinfulness. God, we've all sinned and fallen short of your glory. We can't save ourselves. We are objects of wrath. We've sinned against a holy God. Sometimes we wanna diminish that, but the fact of the matter is when we diminish it, we don't realize that you're far more holy than we can imagine and we're far more sinful that we realize we have violated your law we have violated your holiness and what we deserve is your wrath and condemnation but we are so grateful that you so love the world that you gave your only begotten son jesus came he died on a cross for our sins so that through faith in him we could have the ultimate rescue of it all that we could be with you forever and god i pray if there's somebody here that doesn't know you i pray today you would show them that to your depth of their sin just as you did for each of us and show them the glory of jesus i pray they'd run to you Lord, for those of us that do know you, I know that we're in different situations, different circumstances of life. And God, I know there's some people right now, they're going through some real stuff and it's hard and and it's chaotic and, and, and they don't know what to do. I'm reminded as the hymn says, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. I pray that they would know today They're probably thinking of all the things they got to do. Right now, I pray they'd rest. I pray right now they'd submit themselves to you. They'd rest in you. They'd trust in you. They'd cling to you and allow you to do what you do best, and that's to rescue. Lord, we love you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.